All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us as we begin. Father, we uh, confess that we really wouldn't understand nothing of significance even about ourselves if you had not revealed. And, and yet, in your kindness your grace, you have chosen to reveal so that we can understand ourselves, we can understand others, we can understand how to grow in the depth of our relationship with you and be uh, changed genuinely changed, deeply changed by the power of your spirit. And I pray, Father, that our discussion this morning would give us greater insight, not just for the sake of knowledge, but so that we really would be stirred in our hearts to pursue you more deeply, so that we would be more like Jesus, and as a result, all of our relationships as well would be more pleasing in your sight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, It's not exactly biblical, but I'm going to begin by giving you a a quote from Shakespeare. This is uh, from Hamlet, spoken by Hamlet. He said, What a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, What is this quintessence of dust? Um, It's a big question. What exactly is man? Anybody in here old enough to have ever seen The Elephant Man? See the movie? Okay. Good, we got a few. I was very young. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, Sonny. We were all very young once. Um, For you younger folks, if you've never seen it, it's it's probably one that's that's worth a rent. Um, You could find it. It may not, they may not even have it at Blockbuster. You probably have to download it. But, um, the essence of the story is there's a, a, a man who has uh, the disease elephantitis, and as a result, he's extremely deformed, especially in his head. And his head has roughly kind of a, the shape of an elephant, and a guy gets a hold of him and um, begins to use him, takes him to carnivals and shows, and shows him off as this ghastly thing, you know, puts a bag over his head and then whoop, pulls it back and reveals him, you know, and people groan and they stare and they gawk, and uh, obviously pretty depressing for the man himself. And at one point in the movie, kind of the you know, key point is he, he screams out, he's in despair, and he's, he says, I'm not an animal. I'm a human being. And uh, it's really very moving. There's a person that comes alongside him and sees him as a human being and uh, cares for him and nurtures him. And, um, you know, obviously the disease as it takes hold um, eventually really devastates his health entirely. Uh, but the idea is that what is man? Well, man is, is more than just this form, the physical form. There's something much more significant that makes up man. And um, what we want to do this morning is um, I want to give you kind of a, a brief biblical anthropology, okay? biblical definition, description of what is man, and then we want to apply that to some particular issues of sanctification. We want to look at some of the most difficult issues of sanctification because I think that that can give us a, maybe a template for looking at what we consider the more minor issues of sanctification, so to speak. Look at extreme cases kind of thing. Look at uh, issues of addiction. Uh, the issue particularly we're going to look at of, of homosexuality, pornography, some of these really deeply embedded issues of, uh, that relate to our self-identity. Okay? And then I want to make transference as well to more mundane issues of sanctification related to you know, just our general personality. 
and other kind of things. Okay? So where I want to start you is with the most succinct biblical definition. It's found in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Okay, so I'm going to give you the overview. Blake and Matt are going to talk about some particulars. We're going to uh, stop between each section, give you a chance to ask questions, then more time hopefully at the end. And then we've got in the next session we have, it's just Q&A, so anything you want to talk about. So stuff that comes up here that we didn't really get resolved, we'll take a little break and you can come back and bring that stuff up. Okay? We're going to start with Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. In that verse, there are three Hebrew words. The dust of the ground is ha-adamah, uh, the, the earth, the ground, the dust, from which Adam's name came. Okay, you see it right there, Adam. The ha is a definite article, the dust. And that's what Adam comes from. He is made of the same elements that everything else is made of. Okay? He has a physical being, but he is not yet man. Because he has not yet been animated. God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, that is nishma, and he becomes animated. He becomes a nefesh. He becomes a living being. He becomes a person. And it is this uh, joining together of the physical being and the breath of life that makes up mankind. Okay, so there are three words. First, ha which is dust of the earth. Okay, we're going to look at uh, some of the Greek terms as well in a minute. Nishma, which is breath of life or consciousness. Okay. Breath of life, um, and sometimes Hebrew will draw upon the word ruach, spirit, which can also be translated wind, that resides in God. And it is given to man. The result is man is always dependent upon God for the breath of life, okay, or spirit, the animating presence. And then the third, nefesh, which is a living being, a soul, the, the individual personality. It is created when there is a union between physical body, breath of life. Once it is created, nefesh is eternal or everlasting, would probably be a better word. Okay, because it has a beginning, but it will last forever. So Shakespeare's quote is really applicable. Uh, man is amazing. Um, I'm, I doubt that your pets will be in heaven. <laughs> Or hell. But every person, once created, exists forever. Yeah, that's part of the nobility of mankind. What that means is, mankind is uh, material. There is a physical being that's necessary in defining what a person is. And I use the word man, obviously, genetic, uh, generically. I'm talking about mankind, male and female. So, you know, you look in the Genesis account again. God creates man, he creates man, male and female. This is true of all mankind. There's a material uh, part. There's an immaterial or spiritual component to man. The two come together. They become man. When material and immaterial are separated, we experience what? Death. Okay? That is death. Separation of material and immaterial is death. So my point in that is man is not merely his or her body. That's naturalism. So once created upon death ceases to exist. You are not merely your body. And the things that you think and feel and so forth are not merely the physiological events that happen within your material body, including your brain. A man is not merely material. 
That's naturalism. Man is not a spiritual being with a body. Now that is in distinction to a lot, if not most, of what you're going to read in terms of uh, spiritual life that's written even by evangelicals. The, the orientation is man is a spiritual being with a body. I would argue man is a physio-spiritual being. You are both. That's the nature of mankind. That is your nature. Your nature is to be both physical and to be spiritual. And this separation is completely unnatural. The separation is something that's introduced by the fall. So, upon death there is a separation. Glorification is the hope that the two will be joined together again and the physical will no longer have all of these uh, defects that we all carry with us in body and mind and spirit. Okay? These things will be perfectly reunited and perfectly reformed, and that's really the hope of glorification, and that we will live on a physical earth. We are physical beings, not just spiritual beings. We're both. Okay? So our destiny is not to be floating in the clouds. It's not uh, some nirvana-type thing where we're uh, spiritually united to a one spirit or anything like that. It, it, our destiny is also a, phys- it's a spiritual and a physical destiny. It is both. Okay, that's the nature of man, in, in, in brief. Now, let me break down some of the terminology that you see, some of the descriptive terms. Okay, if we put them in two categories, there's material and there's immaterial. The material, the common term, is uh, obviously body. In Greek, that could be soma or sarks, ha'adama. In Hebrew, sometimes Paul talks about the members of your body. So, you know, he's talking about hands, arms, legs, so forth, the different pieces this material is always dependent upon God. It's always a gift from God. It is dependent upon God. I'll read to you one passage that kind of illustrates that. Job chapter 27, verse 3. Job writes, For as long as life is in me and the breath of God, that's Ruach, the breath of God is in my nostrils, My lips certainly will not speak unjustly. This is what I'll do as long as the breath of God is in me. In other words, if God chooses to remove the breath, then I am dead. And Job may have a limited understanding of what that means at this point, but he had more of an understanding uh, sometimes maybe than we give him credit. He understands, yet in my flesh, after death, I will see the Lord. There will be bodily, physical resurrection, and I will be in the presence of the Lord and behold his face. But the point is that this um, breath or wind or spirit, the animating presence, is entirely dependent upon God. It's not self-generated. You can't hold on to it. You can't even add a day to your life apart from what God has determined. Preordained, you will live. Now, in Psalm 104, we're not going to read that. Psalm 104, verse 29 through 30. I can't remember which of these verses I left in your notes. The same concept is uh, applied to the animal kingdom. God can remove the breath of life from them as well. A second category is uh, material. And under material, there are a variety of terms that are used. One is soul, often nephesh in Hebrew or suke in Greek. Usually, that term applies to the person. Okay? Sometimes it can refer to, to other immaterial components within man. But normally soul is the person. So on the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 souls that were saved, meaning people. Okay? The soul also, though, can refer to immaterial faculties. So at times the soul chooses, the soul feels, the soul sins, the soul can be in distress, the soul thinks, the soul worships. Okay? All these things can be done by the soul. Second term 
is the spirit. The spirit is the animating presence. It is, uh, it's the indication both of the presence of life, but also the fervor of life. Okay? Spirit is animating presence. It indicates presence of life, but also fervor of life. So when we talk about Aggie spirit, okay, ah, that means we're excited, you know, or the horse is spirited or whatever. Well, Bible uses that term similarly at times. It can talk about the fervor of life, but it's also the presence of life, spirit, wind, breath. This is a gift. It comes from God. Its absence is death. Its presence is life. The spirit itself feels. It can be anguished. Spirit can be broken. Okay, so that fervor is diminished. It can be excited, active. The spirit can will or choose. The spirit perceives. The spirit worships. One definition is this from a, a Bob Pine, who wrote a book on anthropology. He said, the spirit is the expression of desires and thoughts that are rooted in the heart. Okay. Third major term is Heart. Among all of the biblical terms, heart is the most flexible. It certainly can refer to emotional qualities, but uh, that's not its most common usage. It is uh, kind of the seen in biblical literature, Old Testament and New Testament, as the center of a person. Okay? The central uh, seat, organ of man's conscious life in its moral and intellectual aspects. Okay? It comprehends all elements of personalities, Sometimes it's more restrictive, just referring to emotion, but it can be, uh, the heart can be in obedience, it can be in rebellion, it can be in integrity, okay? One with the mind and the beliefs and so forth, or it can be corrupted. Uh, It can be enlightened or blinded, it can be arrogant or humble. The heart can be fearful, astonished, glad and joyful. It can lust, it can think and reason. It is uh, the center of motive as well as desire. So again, another definition. As the seat of emotion, understanding, will, and conscience, the heart is the center of one's being, the source of all thoughts and behavior. Okay, so notice you've got it as the seat of emotion, understanding, will, that is choice, conscience, ability to be convicted and choose right and wrong or think right and wrong. So the heart is a really, really flexible term. Now, looking at all three of those terms at the same time, the soul is me because it is my life. The heart is me because it is the central organ of my being. The spirit is me because it is my breath and that which moves me. So any three of those terms can, be, can refer to the entire person. I'll give you three other terms to look at quickly. The mind. I know there are several terms that are used throughout Greek and Hebrew to refer to the, the uh, intellectual faculties. There is not a term that talks about the brain as an organ. There are terms that talk about the head, okay, but not the, the brain as an organ, but a lot of terms that talk about um, our reasoning, whether it's good or evil, uh, whether it's right or wrong, according to truth or error, uh, gnosko, gnosis, no, uh, knowledge, okay, the, um, just the, the data that we have collected and how we think about that data and how we use that data. It can be fallen. The mind can also be renewed. It's interesting if you do uh, a word search on on mind, and you're looking in the Old Testament, and you're doing your search according to English, the most common Hebrew word that shows up for mind is actually the word for heart, lave. Okay. Conscience. Conscience is that property of personality whereby one may be aware as to whether or not 
he or she is doing the will of God. Am I choosing right or wrong? Titus 1.15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind, their capacity to reason, and their conscience are defiled. So they can be really, really, really smart and make really, really, really bad choices. Or they can reason to completely erroneous conclusions. That's why you know many atheists who believe in evolution who are incredibly brilliant people. Because apprehending God and truth is not merely a a mental exercise. It's also a moral exercise. Finally, the will. Will is the power to choose a course of action and continue in it. It's the power to choose a course of action and to continue in it. Sidebar, uh, I think that, uh, in my opinion, this, the resurgence of um, Calvinism has done a real disservice to this concept of will. Okay. What it means, what will means, is that you make real choices with real consequences, and that is a fundamental part of being created in the image of God. God reasons, God chooses, God acts, and there are consequences, and he has placed that in mankind. He has delegated a form of, and a limited form of sovereignty, which is the exercise of will. I don't call it free will, because you you can't do anything that you choose. You can't do anything that's outside of your nature, right? So it's not free in that sense, and I think that that word uh, free as as a descriptive term of will really leads us down a the wrong path, but you do have will. You do make choices. Adam and Eve made real choices in the real garden with real consequences, not just for them, but for all of us. Okay? So you have will. You have the capacity to choose. The will has fallen. Conscience has fallen. Mind has fallen. <laughs> Heart fallen. All these things are affected by the fall, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, my point in bringing up all these different terms is uh, that I wanted you to observe that these are not technical terms. There's a lot of overlap. You know, we need uh, our Venn diagrams here, okay, to to describe how these things work. Uh, These terms are not technical. There's a lot of overlap. What they are is descriptive of function. So what the Bible is trying to help us do is to understand how we work and how we function. Uh, And they're not spatial, Okay, my conscience isn't here, and my will here. They're not a place. They're descriptive. So compassion is um, drawn from the word for intestines because it's talking about feeling. Well, it's, it's a descriptive word. I feel things. Where, where do I, does it hit me? If I'm anxious, I'm nervous, got a test coming up or presentation or whatever, I feel it here. Well, compassion's here. It's just descriptive to help us understand how we work, how we function, how we fit together. Okay. The fact of the matter is, a lot of these uh, transactions, where do they at least begin? Well, they begin in this organ called the brain. Okay. There are physiological things that are transpiring that cause me to feel and to believe, to become convinced, then to choose, and then to act through my body. Okay. And so the point is that these things are uh, interrelated. Now, let's look briefly at the effects of the fall and then apply this to uh, sanctification. The fall had effect on us spiritually, and the effect was uh, separation. Adam and Eve chose independence from God. They choose, chose to um, not do his will, 
but to pursue their own, and that affected their relationship with God. Since spirit is dependent upon God, it's a gift from God, and they chose to operate independently from God, God allowed them to separate themselves, and they became dead spiritually, separated spiritually. There was alienation in their relationship with God. That's why they had to leave the garden. That's why they felt guilt and shame, and they hid before God. There's a spiritual component, spiritual death. Uh, The fall affected us physically, It introduced disease, decay, and ultimately physical death, which is the separation of the material and the immaterial. But the point is, this divisibility is a result of the fall. Man was designed to be indivisible, to be a whole, material and immaterial, together and functioning as one. So divisibility, the separation, this concept, is introduced by the fall. That's where it came from. There are uh, are psychological effects, effects on the suke or the soul from the fall. Uh, disorders, bipolar disorder, got uh, chemical irregularities in the brain, there is a diseased mind. Well, the fall reached all the way into the body, and one of the organs of the body is the mind. And so we think about these type of issues, uh, you know, psychological disorders, but let's also apply it to personality. There are components of our personality that they're just not very good, (laughs) not very nice, you know? Um... We have genetic predisposition to be completely self-centered, self-absorbed. And James tells us that's why we get in fights with other people. So we have genetic predispositions to anger and to lust. Maybe even genetic predisposition to alcoholism and homosexuality and whatever. Well, maybe, probably. Okay, Because the fall reached all the way down into your physical being and into your mind. That's why we don't reason correctly and think correctly and we don't even feel like we should feel about things. We don't feel according to truth. Okay? And then there's a relational effect on the fall. Obviously, if we've got all these other things going and our personalities are not glorified, we're going to have conflict and anger, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? All those things are going to be true about us. Now, What are the implications of this for sanctification? Okay, I've really flown through that. Um, We could read books and books and books on this issue, but um, implications for sanctification that we kind of want to get into this morning. All of the following have to be addressed in the sanctification process. First, man in relationship to God. Our beliefs, our worship, repentance, you know, turning from sin, receiving forgiveness from God, All these have to be addressed. Most of the books that you read on sanctification only address this issue. What you believe about God, how you pray to God, what you think about God, your worship, seeking forgiveness, so forth. Most books on sanctification only address man in relationship to God. But in the sanctification process, you have to look at the whole person. Again, our, our point this morning is that the nature of man was designed to be indivisible. And there are interrelationships that uh, you have to understand if you're really going to understand the whole process of becoming more and more holy, more and more like God. Okay? So you also have to address man in relationship to the immaterial self. Okay? Thinking, feeling, choosing. Okay? Norm, I would say, actually, most stuff on sanctification, biblical literature, addresses the first two. What do we think and feel and choose? It does get into that. So one and two. But then man in relationship to the material self. In sanctification, you've got to address sickness and in health. 
You have to address these things. When are you most likely to really become discouraged and to not want to pick up your Bible and read and pray? Because you got the flu. It affects you. You've got the flu and your flu's going on and on and you're getting out of a habit of reading, praying, worshiping, being in fellowship. You're becoming more discouraged and the flu finally goes and you're out of those habits that draw you into relationship with God and others. Well, there, there are physical components. Yeah, that's just a simple illustration. Sickness and health, emotional and physiological behaviors have to be addressed as well. And uh, the guys are going to get into those a little bit more. Uh, the person in relationship to others, friends, family, fellowship, face-to-face relationships, virtual relationships, which interestingly can these days have an enormous effect on a person's spiritual life, so to speak, their sanctification, because they're getting into these relationships that are destructive, sometimes even when they haven't seen the person face-to-face, ever. Well, that, you have to address all of those things. Finally, cause and effect relationships may be absolutely impossible to determine. Let me give you one illustration. Uh, depression. Godless beliefs are attacking us constantly in our culture. And there are many times when we are tempted to entertain them and believe them. Okay? It happens to us all the time. When that happens and we actually embrace godless beliefs, we will begin to make self-destructive choices. The result of self-destructive choices is guilt. That is the appropriate human response or human feeling to self-destructive choices. We should feel guilty for sinful choices because we were made to be in relationship with God and we have stepped out of that relationship. Okay? As the guilt continues, uh, there can be physiological change. When David sinned, he could not sleep. He didn't want to eat. Okay? He said, my body is wasting away. I think he probably was clinically depressed. You know, there were physiological changes. Those transpire long enough, well, they can have physiological effects on the brain because our feelings have a physiological component. Okay? So you meet a person who is depressed. Well, why are they depressed? You know, were there, did it initiate with um, embracing wrong thinking, embracing false beliefs? Did it trans- move into sinful and self-destructive choices for which they feel guilt. The guilt has never been removed. There's never been repentance or so forth. And the result has been there's been physiological change. Well, maybe that's why they're depressed. Or maybe it began because there was a physiological deficiency, either from trauma or from a genetic predisposition. The levels of serotonin in that person's brain are, are not in balance. And that's the way uh, they were born. Yeah. Chuck? Okay. Say it louder, Chuck. Chuck is a, is a psychologist here. We've had many conversations about this. Here, stand close to my mic. <laughs> but not too close. This is therapy. <laughs> 10% of all severe depression is attributable to a hypothyroid condition. So if you can correct that condition, that will have dramatic impact on the way people feel. And unfortunately, I think uh, real extreme uh, Christian psychology that attributes all emotional imbalance to 
to sin or some derivative of sin misses the point of what you're saying about the complexity. Great. And that's my point is the complexity. Okay. So they've got this, this um, physiological problem that that's, uh, has not been addressed. Well, they may enter into depression, and as a result of the depression, then they begin to believe things that are false. And then they make these self-destructive choices. And then they're much deeper into this cycle of depression. And they, you know, they show up uh, for lunch with you, and they're depressed. Why? You know, a lot of times you will never know how did it start. So in the sanctification process, you have to address all of these issues. All of them. And you have to address them simultaneously. So if someone shows up uh, in my office for counseling um, and depression is, is the issue, uh, I send them in for physical. And I say, go to this doctor and get a physical. And I usually try to call the doctor ahead of time and say, here's what I've seen. Here's what I want you to look for. Um, these are the symptoms that were presented in my office because sometimes the person won't be maybe quite as honest or address those issues with the doctor. So this is what I want you to go after. Let's get a physical. Um, you know, they're not eating, they're not sleeping, so forth. Well, what's going on here? Okay. I don't want to address the physical. I want to address um, spiritual. Is there unconfessed sin for which we need repentance? And they need to be led through a process of repentance. Are they worshiping? Are they in the word? Are they letting the word transform their mind and, and put truth into their minds? Are they doing that at all? Are they in fellowship with other believers? Or is all their fellowship, so to speak, with the world? So the world is influencing everything that they think and feel and believe. Okay? Most of the time when folks show up in my office, all of those things, for depression like that, all those things are out of whack. Because they don't come to see me until things are really bad. So my point is this very simply, is in the sanctification process, not just when you're working with other people, but when you're thinking about yourself, you are, you are one. You are, you are just, you are a person. Okay? And all of these components figure in, and you need, you need to understand how has God made you and put you together so you can address these and move forward in holiness. Okay? Uh, questions? Let me take a few questions. Do we have time? <laughs> Like this? Okay, maybe one question. <laughs> and then we'll bump until the end. <laughs> These guys don't want me to cut into their time. <laughs> We're having relational conflict here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, just came back from working in a part of the world for the last couple of months where they're a lot more likely to attribute things like this with demonic activity. Um, I noticed that that was in the like, How does maybe demonic activity fit into some of the it, it does absolutely, you know, in the in the in the spiritual realm. There's no question about it, no question about it. You know, my my son uh, had a nightmare last night, you know, and he woke up at 3 a.m. Uh, I think, and um, his Trissy's dad was you know getting hurt, and there were all these things happening in his mind, and you know he came in and he woke Tristy up, and she said, she said, "What have we taught you? You need to do it." points in time right like this. What do you do? He said, Jesus, I pray that you would protect me from Satan's attacks and that you would guard my mind. Okay? Because we trained him, spiritual warfare is real. Okay? Where did that thought come from? Was it just uh, the flesh, you know, and his propensity to want to grab hold of things that aren't true or scary, whatever, maybe? Uh, was it demonic? 
maybe. I tend to lean towards uh, probably demonic. I've just seen how God attacks children in their dreams. I mean, how uh, <laughs> Satan. Yeah. <laughs> God attacks them. Obey your parents. <laughs> Satan attacks them and uh, scares them and, and really controls them, manipulates them through fear. Um, you know, I've, I've had incidents where uh, I was, it was very clear spiritual warfare. I remember waking up in the middle of the night one, at one point, and I couldn't breathe. All I could feel was there's something sitting on me. And the result of it sitting on me, and I was frightened. And I, I don't get frightened a lot. I was frightened. And the result of it sitting on my chest was I couldn't speak the name of Jesus, even though I tried. And so I tried. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, and then Trissy wakes up because I'm, ah, you know, and I, you know, and then I just quoted uh, Colossians 1 about who Christ is and that he is, uh, you know, the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is the ruler over all the kings of the earth. He has all authority over all things in all earth, including my house and my bedroom, and in the power of Jesus' name, I command you to leave, to breathe. I don't doubt the reality of this. So you've got uh, issues of spiritual warfare as well. No doubt about it. That did come up in one of our home groups. We were talking mm-hmm. about spiritual. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned spiritual battle and dreams. And everyone else in the group just looked at me like I was crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, because we tend to be anti-supernatural in the good old U.S. of A. So we discount that. And so we don't address it in our, in our uh, spiritual lives. Okay, I'm going to let these guys go and then um, give you as much time as we can. Yeah, like, like Brian said, we have a Q&A after this, so uh, you guys can continue to ask questions about this. So I'm supposed to talk about addiction and theology. Uh, when I told Julie what I'm talking about, she assumed I meant addiction to theology this morning. So she said I should get up here and confess. Uh, my name is Blake, and I am a, an addict of theology. But uh, actually, reverse of that, I wanted to give you guys a little theology of addiction. Uh, I want to start by saying really clearly I am not an expert on the issue of addiction. Uh, I don't mean to portray myself as that. I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a scientific expert. Uh, I'm not giving you clinical expert advice. I'm just giving you some pastoral connection of this thing we call addiction and how it fits into theology and sanctification. So please know that. I'm sure some of the terminology I use, there's some folks here who will know that there would be better ways to state what I'm going to state, and they may have some better things to share uh, offline. But I'm just going to give you guys some some perspective on it, uh, particularly from a couple passages and then from what Brian mentioned. A little bit of definition first, um, just some layman's definitions of addiction. Often when you look at the subject of addiction, people are thinking addiction to drugs or alcohol, addiction to a substance. That's typically how the word has been used. Um, Back in 92, Morrison Flavin got together and put together this definition. Just let me read it to you. Addiction is a primary progressive chronic disease with genetic, uh, psychosocial, and environmental factors influencing its development and manifestations. The disease is often progressive and fatal. It is characterized by impaired control over the use of a substance, preoccupation with the substance, use of the substance despite adverse consequences and distortions in thinking. That's usually how people think of addiction. It's about a substance, and, and we need more and more of the substance, and we can't control our use of the substance. That's how the word is generally used in the medical literature. It seems on stuff that I've read that more and more lately uh, in the world of medicine, we've, become, we've come to see that the that this idea of addiction can be defined more broadly 
to refer to really anything, whether it's a substance like drugs or alcohol or a behavior that has a propensity towards addiction. And, and so usually you'll see in literature now, um, I was looking at some stuff, actually a, a, an article in Time magazine that kind of summarized some of this stuff really well. Uh, from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, they say addictions are repetitive behaviors in the face of negative consequences. The desire to continue something that you know is bad for you. Uh, in this article, they, they interviewed Dr. Nora Volkow, the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and she says some people have a genetic predisposition to addiction. But because it involves these basic brain functions, everyone will become an addict if sufficiently exposed to drugs or alcohol. That can go for non-chemical addictions as well. Behaviors from gambling to shopping to sex may start out as habits but slide into addictions. Sometimes there might be a behavior-specific root of the problem. Uh, Her research group has discovered that in cases of uh, morbidly obese people who are compulsive eaters, they exhibit hyperactivity in the areas of the brain that process food stimuli, including the mouth and the lips and the tongue. For them, activating these regions, like their taste buds, uh, is like opening the floodgates to the pleasure center of their brain. And for that reason, almost anything that's deeply enjoyable can turn into an addiction. And that's kind of how I want to talk about the subject of addiction this morning. Not the narrow uh, focus of addiction of of a substance or or alcohol, something like that, but more broadly, anything that can stimulate the pleasure center of the brain and turn into into an addiction. Uh, The primary culprit in addiction appears to be, from recent research, the brain's reward system. God designed that into our brains. It's a, a chemical pathway in the brain centered on this chemical called dopamine that gives us a pleasurable sensation. And in addictions, when we do these things or take these, these drugs or, or substances that are good like food or do things like shopping or good things like sex, when we do those, it releases dopamine in our brains. It's a pleasurable sensation. We want more of it. And people can begin to manipulate that pleasure center in their brain by partaking in more and more of that activity uh, till their brains become dependent upon that activity for pleasure. Uh, you, you'll know that in that in the studies on this on this pathway in the brain, this process in the brain, there's a process that occurs related to this called desensitization. Over time, as we continue to give uh, ourselves to that substance or to that activity, like sex or shopping or eating, whatever it is, uh, to, the more that we give into that to seek pleasure from it, uh, the less that a given amount of it gives us of dopamine. Over time, the same amount of gambling, for example, will only give you uh, a smaller and smaller amount of pleasure that you experience in your brain. It releases a smaller and smaller amount of that pleasure-inducing chemical. That's the process of desensitization that fuels an addiction. So addiction is not just the process where our brains come to need an activity or substance to feel pleasure, but we need more and more of it over time because our brains become desensitized to it. So really what we're looking at here, let me kind of sum this up. Scientifically speaking, addictions are repetitive behaviors in the face of negative consequences, and they are often fueled by the addict's manipulation of the brain's reward system, that chemical system that God designed into our brains. Anything that can manipulate that reward system can, in a sense, become addictive, including drugs, alcohol, food, sexual stimulation, shopping, gambling, and a host of other things. So that's addiction, as I'm using it this morning, a very broad definition of it. Uh, And and what we want to see is that science medicine is showing us that there is very much a a physical component to addiction, a chemical process going on in our brains. 
Uh, that's what we want to see from science. Now we want to connect that to sanctification. Usually you come to church, you're thinking of spiritual things. So how does this medical thing, what's going on physiologically in our brains, how does that fit in with our theology of sanctification? So let me walk you through that. Let me just give you a few biblical principles, and then we're going to look at a couple passages that I think uh, are really our best places to go on the subject of addiction. Um, first, we see all throughout the Bible that sin always has negative consequences, even for believers. Sin is inherently destructive to the human being. All sin is inherently destructive to the human being, including believers. Therefore, it should not surprise us what science is learning about addiction. It should not surprise us that one of the consequences for many types of sins is this addictive process to start in our brains. Yeah, because sin is always destructive. It destroys the wiring that God has put in our brains. That's not a surprise. Second thing that we learn, kind of principle here to keep in mind, humans, like Brian said, are both material and immaterial, and that material and immaterial part is, is inseparable until death. It's joined together. So in the subject of addiction, even though science is studying the physical component of it, there is always a spiritual component. Because everything in our, in our lives is an integration of both, physical and immaterial, joined together. So addiction is not merely physiological, it is also spiritual. But it is not merely spiritual. You'll, you'll go into some Christian, count, well, some pastors who will take all behaviors as purely spiritual. Well, no, there, there's a component of both, physiological and spiritual to addiction. Uh, third principle, because the Holy Spirit lives within believers and the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, there is always hope for the believer to obey at any given time. Addiction is not an excuse for sin. That's important to remember. At any given time, because the Holy Spirit living in the believer is infinitely powerful, the believer at any given time can, 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 can uh, obey the Lord. Okay, so they are never forced towards sin. Unbeliever is, believer's not, because he has infinite power within him. He gives into the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. Despite the addiction, he can't obey at this time. Now, that doesn't mean that you just tell the addicted person, well, go in peace in the Holy Spirit, be warm and filled and co-obey. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is there's always hope at any given moment because we have infinite power, the triune Godhead living within us. Okay, so addiction is not an excuse to sin. Uh, okay, now let me uh, show you guys a couple passages. One in particular that I think is really significant on this subject, if you want to look at Romans chapter 6, if you have your Bibles. I went through a class in, in seminary at DTS on the book of Romans, and I got to Romans chapter 6, the middle of the chapter, and uh, ended up doing my exegetical on it and studying it and realizing, oh my gosh, this, this is a passage I've been looking for for years. This is the explanation for addiction. We've all seen people who've been addicted. Maybe we've dealt with addictions in our own life, and we wonder, how does that connect with Scripture? Well, here it is. Not that Paul is using modern medical lingo. He is, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describing how God created humanity and, and uh, gives us a grid for understanding addiction. So look with me, chapter 6, starting in verse 15. It starts with a question. Paul says, What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? It's a logical question. Believers are under grace. God will forgive us for all sin. Well, there's lots of sins that are fun, so why don't we just go sin? Can experience the fun and then be covered with grace? It's a logical question. Paul responds, May it never be, very strong language in Greek, and then he tells us why we should not give in to sin. Verse 16, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. What Paul's saying is the reason to say no to sin is that if you choose to give in to sin, you will become a slave of sin. 
Human beings, according to verse 16, are always slaves. That's kind of a humbling thing to think about. We are never truly free. We are always slaves of something. We are either slaves of sin if we give in to sin, or we are slaves of righteousness if we give in to obedience. Paul's telling us that's only two options in front of you. You don't have a third option of freedom. You have either slavery to sin or slavery to righteousness. Okay, now, as you look at verse 16, if you're familiar with chapter 6 of the book of Romans, verse 16 might be a little bit of a surprise. Paul's telling us, believers, that if we give in to sin, we will become slaves of sin. How do we reconcile that with what he says at the beginning of the chapter? You guys are probably familiar with chapter 6, the beginning of it. Look at verse 6, for example. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Paul uh, puts forth this beautiful passage, this beautiful theological argument that, that tells us, that proves that all believers are freed from slavery to sin. So how can he say that at the beginning of the chapter and in the middle of the chapter say, if you choose to sin, you will be a slave of sin? Well, Paul actually uses this concept of slavery in, in different ways in the book of Romans. Actually, three different ways. Two ways in chapter 6 and another way in chapter 7 uh, that we won't look at this morning. In chapter 6, Paul has two senses of slavery in mind. At the beginning of chapter 6, he's talking about legal slavery. In the courtroom of God's universe, unbelievers are legally slaves of sin. They belong to sin and to Satan. They are members of his kingdom. Uh, they, they, you know, if there's a legal document about ownership of that person, if it's an unbeliever, that document is stamped and certified that they belong to sin. That's legal slavery. Okay, but midway through the chapter, Paul starts talking about something different. You see, all believers, the moment we trusted in Christ for salvation, we were joined to Christ's death on the cross. And at, at that point that we died, that, that ownership that sin had over us, it was canceled because we died to sin. It's set aside. Now we are freed from legal slavery to sin. Sin has no legal hold over any believer. We do not belong to sin in that way. But we can belong to sin in a different way. In the way that Paul's talking about in the middle of chapter 6, he begins to talk about sin as experiential slavery. It's possible even though a master doesn't own you, you can live under that master as if you were a slave. A, a recent illustration, a lot of you uh, probably read that book that came out a few years ago, Same Kind of Different as Me. Uh, about a really poor man named Denver Moore. It talks about him growing up on a Louisiana plantation. Uh, he, he lives today, so he, he you know, wasn't growing up in the time of slavery. He's growing up there in the 40s and 50s, 60s, I think. And it describes his life. And when you read it, you think, have, have I got the century right? That, that sounds like pre-Civil War South. His life sounds like he is a slave on that Louisiana plantation. Well, he was not a legal slave. Because slavery was illegal at that point. He doesn't legally belong to the plantation master. But as long as he lived on that Louisiana plantation under the rules of that man, he might as well have been a slave. His life looked like slavery. He experienced slavery. That's the kind of slavery Paul's talking about middle of chapter 6. You no longer belong legally to sin, but if you choose to sin on a day-to-day -day basis, you make yourself experientially once again the slave of sin. You live as if you were a slave to sin. You give sin power over your life. You give it more and more power over you the more and more that you sin. On the reverse side, the more and more you obey, the more power you give righteousness over you. You become more and more a slave of righteousness. So that's what Paul's talking about is experiential slavery, either to sin or to righteousness. He tells us the results of each of those. If we obey and become more and more a slave of righteousness, the result is, end of the verse, sanctification. We grow in holiness. That's the progressive aspect of, of salvation. We become more and more like Jesus Christ. We uh, escape more and more the power of sin in our lives. 
On the flip side, if we allow ourselves to become slaves of sin by sinning over and over again, if we come under the power of sin, the result is what? It's death. Now, Paul uses the word death in lots of different ways in the book of Romans. Here, what he means is either the death of God's discipline, like God can bring discipline in a, in a believer's life who is sinning. That discipline grows with time. And if the believer continues to sin, the ultimate level of God's discipline is physical death. There's many stories in the Bible of that. God just takes you out. You're done. So it could be physical death. If you allow yourself to experientially become the slave of sin, the ultimate result will be your physical death. Or he could be talking about a life of death, a life that is joyless, that is powerless, that has no spiritual vitality in it. Um, Really, I think Paul's hitting at a principle, uh, that famous verse, into the chapter, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's not just an evangelism verse. That's a that's a universe verse. This is how it's always true. The wages of sin is always death for every person. For an unbeliever, it's eternal death in hell. For a believer, it's a life of death, either a life that ends in death from God's discipline or a life that's joyless, it's powerless. Sin always leads to the experience of death. On the flip side, the gift of God always leads to eternal life. Not just heaven. Eternal life is bigger than that. Eternal life includes a life of joy and peace and significance and wholeness here in this life. So uh, that's the results that Paul lays out before us. If we give in to sin, we will become more and more the slaves of sin and will experience a life of death. And uh, that connects really nicely with the science of addiction. I think the science of addiction, the medicine of addiction, uh, is beginning to fill in the blanks of how God has caused this process to be true. Verse 16, how did God design that into you? Well, the science of addiction is explaining that. He, he designed this reward system into your brain physiologically. And as you give in to sin, you begin to manipulate that and you become more and more dependent upon that sin. And the more dependent upon that sin you get, you, you get more desensitized to that sin so that you need more and more of it, leading to further and further sin. Paul actually fleshes that out. Uh, let's see, verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. As you gave in to sin, as you gave yourself over to sin, it resulted in more sin. That's the process of addiction. The more you give in to sin, the pleasure you receive, the more you want in the future of sin. If you sin a little bit today, you will sin even more in the future. I think the, the science, now, that doesn't mean that all sins are working in this physiological process of your brain we call addiction. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying many sins, often sin, can result in this addictive process in your brain going on, and, and we see this passage fulfilled. For the addict who gives in to, let's say, a classic example, sexual addiction. So they give in to a little bit of sin today, um, that maybe just give in to some thoughts of lust. They begin to give in to that, and, and it works through the processes of their brain. They receive pleasure from that. They like that pleasure. They begin to give in to it more and more. But over time, just giving in to thoughts of lust doesn't give them the same satisfaction of pleasure, so they need to go deeper. So now they begin to add in pornography so that they can get that same amount of pleasure uh, by giving in to that. So they give in to that day after day. Well, after time, through the processes of the brain that God has designed, they become desensitized to that level of sin. Now they need more. They begin to act out and seek out sexual partners and whatever it is. That's how addiction, that's how sin works. If you give into a little sin today, you'll give into more sin tomorrow. Sin is inherently addictive. That's how God designed the brain to work. Now, the good news is, second passage I want to show you just really briefly, Philippians chapter 2, the process works in reverse. Okay, so when we give into sin, through the processes of our brain, we desire sin more and more. We desire deeper levels of sin. But there's good news for us, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, So then, my beloved, 
just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me just cover this really fast. Um, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, now much more work, uh, let's see, uh, work out your salvation, accomplish your salvation. Paul's talking about the progressive aspect of salvation, your sanctification, grow in your holiness in Christ. And we have a part to play in that sanctification and God has a part to play. Our part is what? Obedience. Obey. Every day in every way, obey God. That's our part in sanctification. As we obey, God does something. That's the subject of verse 13. Actually, God does two things. If you look carefully, two verbs there. First thing he does is he enables us to do. God enables our obedience today. As you choose, I'm going to obey God today. He, through his spirit, gives you the power to accomplish that act of obedience in the presence. But that's not all God does. What else does he do? To will. That's the verb, to desire. God doesn't just enable your obedience today, but he works in you so that you wish for obedience in the future. God is at work in us as we obey today. He enables, he empowers our obedience today. But he also works through the power of his spirit in the neural pathways of our brains to change our desires, to shape our desires a step at a time so that tomorrow we will more strongly desire obedience. That's the good news. As you give into righteousness, what does Paul say in Romans 6? You become a slave of righteousness. You increase its hold over you because that's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Holy Spirit doesn't just grow you spiritually. He grows you physically. He's at work in the pathways of your brain, uh, lessening the strength of pathways that lead to sin, uh, growing the strength of pathways that lead to righteousness, reinforcing them, building them, so that more and more in the future, you won't do obedience out of a sense of obligation. You'll do it out of a sense of desire because he will change the actual desires in your brain so that more and more you desire obedience. So I, I think what God lays out for us in Scripture when we think about what Brian was talking about about a theology of sanctification. Sanctification is not just a spiritual process. It is also a physical process involving our minds, the minds that God has created. When we give in to sin, our minds are changed so that they desire more and more sin. When we walk down the path of sin, it always leads to some form of addiction, which always leads to some experience of death. That's why you should never give in to sin. There's no amount of sin in life that's excusable because all sin is a step into the process of death. It's a step down the pathway of addiction that leads you to further and further to sin. So uh, that's, that's just a very practical advice that you can give to believers who are struggling with their desires for sin. There's no amount of sin that's okay because it is all inherently addictive. But on the flip side, as you give into obedience, God changes you. That's the hope of the Christian life. It's not just that I will always obey God out of obligation and hate that I'm having to do this. No, the more I obey, the more I will want to obey. God reinforces those desires, builds good positive habits in the pathways of my brain so that in the future I desire obedience more and more. I kind of rushed through that, but I want to turn it over to Matt because he's got an important subject. And then, like I said, after this, we can open it up for... (laughs) Yes, Chuck. Can I make just one comment? Please. I agree with you wholeheartedly, uh, and I appreciate it. That's the best explanation I've ever heard. Appreciate uh, it. You provided some insight on science that deals with the consequence of becoming addicted. And I would just want to add that the, the other part of the causality, there's science there. And that's because the human behaviors that become addicted, whether it's gambling, uh, addicted sexuality, pornography, or operant behaviors. And all those behaviors 
are connected to the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. By definition, the behaviors in the central nervous system are voluntary, which means we have a choice or will, which goes back to Brian's point. Mm -hmm. We always have choice in it. Absolutely. All right. Well, if I understand general relativity, and I'm confident I do, uh, time is a fluid concept and uh, (laughs) depends on the speed that you are moving. So uh, the speed that we're moving this morning requires that we're going to probably take a little bit of extra time. I think we're supposed to finish at 1020 uh, we're not going to make that, uh, as I <laughs> but what we're going to do is uh, I think there's about a 15 or 20 minute break between sessions, so we'll push a little bit into the break. If you feel like you need to go to hit the next session, you're not going to offend me much, and so uh, feel free to <laughs> feel free to stand up and do that. And uh, we're also we've got the, this room for the next session too, so we may just take a slightly shorter break in here before we go into question and answer for the next session. So um, Brian and Blake have done a great job laying out some of the background of sanctification, and particularly Blake's talk that he just did on addiction, I think is going to be very similar to what I'm talking about, which is the issue of homosexuality. Um, and just a little bit of background. For, if you're a college student, um, You may not even know that really it's been in the last probably 15 years that our culture has really begun to push the idea that homosexuality is a valid norm for the way that we live our lives. Um, I didn't grow up, like many of you, I didn't grow up seeing homosexuality portrayed and depicted on television and on the internet and all over the place. It wasn't really until... Uh, after or toward the end of my college career that it became such a big issue for us. Um, And really a lot of this in the media actually started, uh, some of y'all will remember Ellen DeGeneres, her show that was on back in the mid to late 90s. It it seems perhaps like it was a long time ago. It actually was 1997 on her show when she, uh, her character came out as a, as a lesbian woman. Um, and then the next year, there was a big backlash over all of that. Actually, the next year, her show was canceled. Uh, but the year after that, 1999, was when Will and Grace came on. And you remember the show Will and Grace, perhaps, where uh, Will, the leading character, was a homosexual man. And uh, now it's hard to find a television show that actually doesn't have a leading character who is homosexual. And so um, it's become part of our culture. And really, I want to say this too, especially for those of us that may be uh, a little bit of an older generation than some of the students. And that is, if you believe that it's an issue that's just out there in Hollywood or just out on the coasts of our country, um, we're actually seeing that that's not the case. As I work with college students and as we minister to youth as well in this church, it's becoming an issue that's a very significant one uh, in the youth groups here, uh, in the college group here, on campus here, as conservative as this town is. And so I say that not to scare anybody, but also to, to just let you know that it's a significant and real issue that at some point uh, we're all going to need to think through and deal with. Just a, a few statistics. Uh, the Pew Research Center, if you, they're, they're kind of a statistical research center similar to like the Barna Institute. If you go back and you interview those who were born between 1928 in 1945, 70% of them will say homosexuality is always wrong. Um, interview uh, those who are baby boomers, born 45 to about 
65, depending on how you define that, 56% of them will say that it is always wrong. Only 43% of those born after 1981 feel that homosexuality is always wrong. And and so um, you can see the mindset of our culture shifting. And the questions that often get asked about this issue are, there's two questions. One is, does the Bible really say that homosexuality is a sin? Um, In other words, there's actually a movement in evangelicalism now to say, um, no, those passages, although they seem on the surface to be talking about all homosexuality, the argument runs that what they're really talking about is promiscuous homosexuality, but that the Bible is not talking about monogamous, faithful homosexuality between either two men or two women. And so that's the way the biblical argument would run. I'll address that for just a minute. The second question is, uh, is homosexuality a choice that a person makes or is a person born that way? Um, Or do other factors in their environment make them that way? In other words, what is the cause of homosexuality? And a lot of that is going to go into what Brian and Blake have really just talked about. How do we separate out what is choice from what is genetics, from what is environment, uh, what is sin and what is, is just the way that I am? How do I separate out all of those things in the sanctification process. And so I'm going to talk for just a few minutes about how those specifically relate to this issue of homosexuality. Typically what happens, the, the, if a person is struggling, the first question that begins to arise actually is this question of choice and genetics and environmental things and all of those sort of questions. And then secondly, often they begin to wrestle with their faith and their, their sexual uh, preferences and the way they identify themselves, because all of a sudden, once they make the decision that I, this is really who I feel that I am, then the second question is, is that compatible with what I believe about God and about Jesus and about the Bible? I'm going to address the questions, though, in the reverse order for our purposes this morning. I'm going to talk quickly about what does the Bible say on the issue I'm not going to be able to go into detailed exegesis this morning, but I can point you to some resources that will help you in that regard. And then I'm going to talk about this issue of genetics and environment uh, choice, some of those sort of things as we walk forward. But as far as the Bible, the Old Testament clearly talks about homosexuality. A couple of passages, Leviticus 18, 22, very simply says, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That's detestable. It's an abomination. And then if you go over two chapters to Leviticus 20, it says that the penalty for homosexual relationships is, is death, is stoning. And in the Old Testament, it, one of the things that's critical to see is that the Old Testament laws are actually laid out in categories. In other words, one of the arguments is people talk about the Old Testament prohibitions of homosexuality, people who are in favor of saying the Bible doesn't prohibit it. They'll say, well, the Old Testament says a lot of stuff that we don't do, right? The Old Testament tells us not to eat shellfish, for example, and uh, many of us do. The Old Testament says don't wear clothing woven of two different kinds of thread, and almost all of us in here are breaking that this morning on some level. Nobody's necessarily wearing polyester, but your clothes are of multiple different kinds of thread. And so uh, the argument will run, well, the Bible says a lot of stuff we don't do. Why do we pick and choose? Well, part of that is in the Old Testament itself, there are actually categories of laws given. And if you look through Leviticus 18, in particular, the section in which this prohibition against homosexuality is given is in a section dealing with sexual sins. 
And there's a number of sexual sins listed, everything from adultery to um, uh, uh, bestiality to homosexuality and a number of things. When you go over two chapters to Leviticus 20 and the penalties are laid out, the death penalty is really only assigned to a limited number of sins. So in other words, people weren't stoned to death for eating shellfish. They weren't stoned to death for wearing clothing made of two different types of threads. They were, for sexual sins, for certain types of sexual sins, put to death. They were for, obviously, things along the lines of murder, kidnapping, things like that. There was the death penalty. But there are certain sins, even in the Old Testament, that are, in a sense, marked off. And it's not because, I mean, clearly every sin, biblically, will separate us eternally from God. Right? Any sin, any amount of sin, and Paul makes that clear, eternally separates us from God. Right? But as God thinks about his plan for his people, and think about Israel for a second, but also the human race, there are also certain sins that they have greater consequences than other sins. Right? Uh, even though they may not have a, a, they both will earn me eternal uh, hell if I commit them, there are certain sins that at least on this earth, they, ha- they have greater consequences. So if I am engaged in sexual sin, that has a ripple effect that affects not just me, but it affects those people around me. It affects my body. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, the person who sins sexually sins against his own body. And there are these ripple effects that go out from there. And I think that part of the reason these sexual sins in the Old Testament have the death penalty is because sexuality hits at the very heart of what is God's plan for his people and for creation. You go all the way back to Genesis 1, you have God creating Adam and Eve in the garden and and they tell them, he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And the reason is so that they will create more kingdom representatives to represent God. Uh, And those kingdom representatives are then uh, taught and trained in an environment where there is male and there is female and they are teaching them the ways of God, right? So sexuality is intended as an opportunity for the man and the woman to produce offspring who will then fill the earth and subdue it uh, and reign on God's behalf on the earth, right? So sexual sin then is saying, I'm going to go outside of what God's plan is for the very, really, core of his creation. And so that's one of the reasons I think this issue of sexuality, really, it hits at our identity. If you think of yourself you, you think of yourself as either male or female. Most of us don't think of ourselves as something else, as some third option or something in between, although there may be people that struggle with that. But, but your gender or sexuality is, is often very tied to how you think of who you are. And I think it hits at the core of our identity because of this fact that we are created as male and female, then to ultimately get married, get into a monogamous relationship, and then produce offspring that will fulfill God's purposes for the world. So as you go to the New Testament, then these prohibitions against sexual sin are reaffirmed. Romans 1 in particular, as Paul walks through the downward spiral of sin, uh, one of the things that he gets to is this issue of homosexuality. In Romans chapter 1, uh, 26 to 27, after they, you know, after their hearts were turned over to impurity, their bodies are dishonored. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So going back to that issue of God created us for a particular purpose, but now I'm going I'm to worship me and my pleasures and my desires instead of trying to do God's plan on the earth. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them over to the degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. 
And in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And then it goes on, and from there, from these actions, there's actually, it's almost a cycle. They engage in wrong thoughts, which lead to wrong actions, which then, Romans 1, 28 to the end of the chapter, is more wrong thoughts. They get into all kinds of wickedness, greed, envy, malice, all sorts of things that go on from there. All right, so Romans 1 is not necessarily arguing that homosexuality is the absolute bottom of the heap type of sin. But what it is saying is that it is evidence of this cycle of sin in a culture and in a people where uh, they cease to honor God. And then as a result, with their sexuality, they no longer fulfill God's plan. And then their minds from there turn depraved and turn to violence and disobedience to parents and wickedness and all sorts of things that leads them down to where we're all under the wrath of God. Right? And homosexuality is one stop for a culture along that pathway, is what Romans 1 seems to be saying. That's why, let me just quickly, two other passages, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, to and 1 Timothy 1, 9-10, both mention homosexuality in a general sense as being outside of the plan of God. The Roman world actually did know all kinds of, of homosexual relationships. There were promiscuous ones. There were also, uh, there was even same-sex marriage in the first century. Juvenal, a uh, satirist in the first century, wrote about a gay marriage and describes it with some degree of uh, satire and, and mocking. And so they did know of this. And so when Paul is addressing homosexuality, it's not a, a fair argument to say, well, he's just, a, just addressing um, child molestation or he's just addressing uh, promiscuous homosexuality or he's just addressing this. The, the Roman world knew all kinds of inappropriate sexual relationships, and Paul really addresses all of them. Um, So that to say, the question, does the Bible really say that it's a sin? There's no doubt that it does. It is one of these sexual sins which God takes very seriously. It doesn't mean that it is, again, there, there are groups that will argue it is the absolute worst possible thing. I don't think that's what it is arguing in the scripture, but I do think it's arguing just like other sexual sins, it's serious. God takes it seriously because it hits at the heart of his plan. So the second question quickly then is, is it something that people choose to do? Is it something that is genetic? Is it something that's environmental? Let me just kind of walk through as we think about, think about your model of sanctification as well that Brian gave you as I walk through some of these concepts. Is it genetic? It's possible that there are genetic components to homosexuality. However, there's not been a good reputable study that really has proven a clear genetic cause. In other words, there's no smoking gun that's a gay gene that we can look at and say, this is what causes a person to be gay. Those people who struggle with this issue will tell you, for as long as I can remember, this has always been a, a struggle in my life. This has always been a challenge. But the studies aren't bearing up that there's a strong genetic correlation. Let me give you two that are often cited. One was a guy named Simon LeVay, He looked at 40 corpses, actually, 40 dead people, and he studied their brains. And he found that the homosexual men had particular portions of their brains were more similar to those of women. In other words, they had a brain structure that looked similar to those of the women that he studied and that the heterosexual men did not. But the challenge is this. He only looked at men who had died of AIDS. And so the question in the study is, did the AIDS cause the changes in the brain or did 
the brain changes cause homosexuality? Did the homosexuality behavior cause the changes in the brain? In other words, there's not a clear cause and effect in the study that he did. Uh, They don't know if the changes are a result of the disease, a result of behavior. What caused these changes? Is it possible that as AIDS took over the body, it actually changed the structure of the brain such that it was diseased? So he's not looking at a control group, which was a big problem. A guy named Dean Hamer found he studied certain uh, homosexual groups And in particular, sometimes he studied brothers and sisters and relatives and things like that who were gay. And he found that there was a X chromosome pattern consistent among certain homosexual groups. But again, Hamer didn't use any control group. And so we don't know if that X chromosome pattern, that genetic pattern exists for heterosexual males as well as homosexual males. In other words, there's no control to his study. And even Hamer himself essentially says, I didn't prove that there's a gay gene. I really didn't prove causation or anything along those lines. All that, to, all that to be said, it wouldn't surprise me if there is a genetic correlation, like Brian was saying. Is there a genetic correlation to sin? Well, absolutely. It, it, I mean, sin runs in our DNA. And so even if a genetic correlation is proven, that doesn't change whether homosexuality is right or wrong according to the Scripture. Um, just like everybody's been saying, there's still a degree of choice related to my actions. Um, the bigger argument with homosexuality, and this is, this is a significant deal, there are environmental factors that often contribute to the development of homosexuality in young people, and particularly with males in particular, but across the board, lack of bonding with the same-sex parent seems to be critical. Um, there was a study done in the early 2000s by a guy named Reekers, and he found that nearly 70% of gender-confused boys don't have a father at home. They have one parent, and it's usually the mother, 70%. That's not all of them, but that's a pretty good correlation for a study. Uh, In the most severe cases, in other words, young boys who were most severely gender-confused, 100% of them were in a a single-mother type of household that didn't have a father at home. Now, again, keep in mind, having having one parent at home that's the mother doesn't ensure that this person will be homosexual, okay? Uh, But what he's saying is that it is a contributing factor. Obviously, there are many men and women that I know that come from a home where there's a mom who did her best and did a great job, and the kids turned out wonderfully. But what he's saying is it's a contributing factor. The other thing to keep in mind is different children can perceive parenting in different ways. Those of us who have kids know that, that the way that I interact with one child or their perception of my relationship might be different from another. And so um, you can have five kids in one family and one of them struggles with homosexuality and the others do not. They may either express their frustration with the parenting in another way or they may be perfectly fine. Uh, The parents may be godly and wonderful and good and you have one child that perceives it in a different way. And that's one of the points to make is that perception of that parenting relationship is almost as significant as what the parent themselves did. But there are these environmental factors. The majority of the boys that were um, interviewed, if the father was in the home, 60% of them said he was psychologically distant or absent. For the adults, as you go back and you talk to homosexual men and women as adults, up to 70% of them described themselves as being either a tomboy or a sissy as a child. In other words, already as a child, they begin to feel this disconnect with their own gender. And so what it seems like happens is uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a time when you're about four, or they say that you begin to really, especially for men, you kind of 
detach yourself from mom a little bit. You begin to attach yourself to dad. If there's not a father in the home or a strong male figure to attach themselves to, and a certain percentage of men, there's this environmental factor that can lead them to identify more with the female than with the male. Yeah, yeah. We can take a short break. Perfect. Take a 15-minute break. And and if if you want to come back, you can. If you've got to go to another session, we'll go from there.